0: This is the Pontiac Podcast. In this episode, we explore the Romanov family and the end of the Russian Tsar. Stay tuned to the end when I sit down with Alyssa to talk about the making of this podcast. was bad at his job. There's no denying that. He was everything a poor employee is. Reckless, thoughtless, unprepared. But as he stood listening to the ticking of the clock, looking from his wife to his sons and four daughters, he could not help but feel reassured. Yes, Nicholas was bad at his job, but what was the worst that could happen? March 13th, 1881, an extravagant gold-trimmed carriage rolls down the cobblestone streets of St. Petersburg, Russia, passing crowds of rugged, grimy onlookers. This carriage carries the most powerful and influential leader of Eastern Europe, autocrat Alexander II Romanov, Tsar of Russia, known as the People Tsar. He had his people in his mind when the first bang rang throughout Petersburg, followed by the screams of pain and blood spilling upon the cobblestone street. After a moment's hesitation, I threw... Threw the bomb. I sent it under the carriage. The explosion knocked me into the fence, stated Nikolai Rabovk, a young revolutionary working for the People's Will Movement. His goal was clear when he threw the bomb, assassinate the Tsar. Miraculously, he failed. Visibly shaken but alive, Alexander exited the carriage to help those injured in the blast. While kneeling down to lend a hand, a second man emerged from the shadows, throwing something at the Tsar's feet. Then he spoke is too early to thank God. I heard his majesty's weak voice cry help. I jumped up and rushed to the emperor. I tried to lift him but the czar's legs were shattered and blood poured out of him stated police chief Dvorcevich. Alexander looked at his savior and uttered to the palace to die. That's where he was when he died with his son looking on and a young boy first experiencing the cruel reality of palace life, holding his limp hand, shedding a tear for his grandfather. This was Nicholas II, future czar of Russia. I am destined for terrible trials, he said. Nicholas grew up in the lap of luxury. Crystal chandeliers, rich food, large, elegantly furnished palaces, everything that anyone could ever want. But there was one thing he did not have. The freedom to choose his future. Nicholas was born into the longest ruling family of Russia, the Romanovs. His father, Alexander III, was the Tsar of Russia. Nicholas, being the oldest male, was therefore the Tsarevich, destined to continue the family dynasty and rule over all the vast Russian Empire. But Nicholas was no Tsar. Standing at five foot seven, he was timid, gentle, nervous, and disinterested in politics. He much preferred to read a book than discuss current issues. He hated the idea of the responsibility of ruling an empire. No one could picture Nicholas as Tsar, not even his father, who never approved of his soft-spoken way, and mocked his small stature, referring to him as divanka, or a little girly. His father made no attempt to interest his son. In fact, he did not allow his son to participate in politics. When an advisor suggested to the Tsar that he be allowed to sit on council, his majesty replied, tell me. Have you ever spoken to his imperial highness, the Grand Duke Tsarevich? Then don't tell me you've never noticed that he is a dunce. He was completely unprepared. The dreaded day, of course, did come when Alexander died of kidney disease on November 1st, 1894, when Nicholas was 26. The now Tsar locked himself within his study while his mind rushed and throat tightened. He cried once the door shut behind him. What am I going to do? What is going to happen to me, to all of Russia? I'm not prepared to be czar. I never wanted to be one. In 1884, at a wedding, Nicholas met Alexandra Hees, a German princess and granddaughter of Queen Victoria of the British Empire. She was young, sweet, and very pretty, but very reserved. The two were immediately drawn to one another. Five years later, he asked her to marry him. Joyously, she answered yes. Oh God, what happened to me then? Nicholas wrote to his mother. I cried like a child, and she did too. The world was changed for me. Four weeks after the death of his father, Nicholas and Alexandra were married. The Russian people were unsure of Alexandra. She was foreign, shy, and quiet, which made her seem aloof and uncaring. They called her the funeral bride. One stated, She comes behind a coffin, she brings misfortune with her a dark omen indeed. In eighteen ninety five, Alexandra became pregnant. The nation buzzed with excitement. The child makes big kicks and fights a great deal inside, wrote Nicholas. It must be a boy. Alexandra gave birth to a girl, the Grand Duchess Olga Nikolaevna Romanov. The people were disappointed. Only a male heir could inherit the crown. The couple was not. God, what happiness. I can hardly believe it's really our child. Alexander was still young, and there was still time for a boy. The next year, Alexandra was again pregnant, and gave birth to a daughter again. Then another daughter, and another by 1904, the nation, as well as the couple, were more than anxious for a male heir. Finally, on August 12, 1904, Alexandra gave birth to Alexei Nikolovich, the Tsarevich of Russia. But something was wrong with Alexei. About six weeks after his birth, Alexei began bleeding from his nose. The doctor's diagnosis? Hemophilia. The boy's disease would have to be hidden in order to present stability to the outside world. The family would keep this secret until he died, only telling physicians and nannies. Shockingly, the family lived relatively normal, in modest clothes and living quarters. Nicholas went off occasionally to deal with royal business, but he spent that time away longing to be home. The children were the pride and joy of their lives. Intelligent Olga, witty Tatiana, elegant Marie, mischievous Anastasia, and spoiled Alexei. The family was happy. While the Romanovs lived peacefully, a storm was brewing in Russia. For years, peasants and workers lived day to day on the brink of starvation. Poverty was a disease that spread throughout Russia, kept alive by the old aristocratic system, keeping the rich rich and the poor poor. The people had had enough. On Sunday, January 22nd, 1905, protesters marched in the street, armed with a petition for Petishka Gazar, or Father Russia, stating, We, the workers and the inhabitants of St. Petersburg, Our wives, our children, and our aged, helpless parents have reached the frightful moment when death is better than the prolongation of our unbearable suffering. We beseech thy help. Mistaking the protest for violence, Nicholas sent guards. When the people approached the palace, they met the guards, who opened fire. By the end, two hundred lay dead, and the day earned the name Bloody Sunday, and Nicholas the name Bloody Nicholas. The Tsar will not help us and so we have no Tsar, concluded one worker. For many years after, strikes, protests and riots broke out across the nation. Many began following Vladimir Lenin and the Bolshevik Party, a communist revolutionary group. On the 15th of March 1917, Nicholas was forced to give up a throne he never wanted and with it 300 years of rule and put an end to the Russian Empire. Him and his family were taken prisoner by the Bolsheviks, and brought to ekaterinburg on May 23rd, 1918. They would never return. When arriving at the house of special purpose, as it was dubbed by their captors, the family was met by angry crowds. Death to the tyrants is what they called for. Off with their heads, hang them, drown them in the lake. Life as prisoners within the house wasn't much better. The house was small to what they were used to. A mere five rooms to live in, surrounded by a wooden fence that stretched above the second-story windows. The Romanovs were used to fences, but not the type intent to keep them in. The windows were whitewashed, and the family got no news from the outside world. Without ventilation, it was hot and stuffy. Their main captor was Yakov Yovoritsky, who had a particular disdain for the royal family caused by his life of poverty. Day by day, the family suffered humiliation and damage of pride at the hand of him and his soldiers. A few enjoyed tripping the Tsar or mocking the teenage grand duchesses. Once, when asking for a new pair of shoes because she had worn out her old pair, a soldier informed Anastasia that she would have no need for new shoes in a few months. But their worst enemy was their own minds. Every day they did the same things. Prayers. Cards. An hour outside. Then meals and no news from outside. Boredom and stress proved deadly. Not knowing what would become of them caused the family the most grief. Alexander became sickly, bedridden most days. Lexi's hemophilia gave him severe pain. Many assumed he would die. When I am dead, it will not hurt any more, will it, Mama? He asked in one of his later episodes. The family was miserable. I had been told the Tsar was a giant among men and the Tsarina a beauty with a voice like a flute from paradise. Instead, I found a drab man with a large balding spot and legs too short for his body. His wife was tired and sick and their son was the color of wax. His eyes with great dark circles underneath, noted one cleaning woman. On July 17th, 1918, the family's misery was about to come to an end. At one thirty in the morning, they were woke up and told to get dressed. Because they were to be moved to a more secure location. Yervovodsky brought the family and four loyal servants outside and then escorted them downstairs. There they were put in a small room lit by a singular light bulb hanging from the ceiling and lined up against the wall in two rows. Nicholas stood next to his son in a chair, Alexandra on the other side. The girls stood behind their mother, and servants Alexei Troop. Dr Bodkin, Anna Demidova and Ivan Karitonova. They were told to be quiet and wait. Then he exited the room and they watched the clock. When the door opened, Yurovsky entered followed by others. In his right hand a slip of paper, in his left a pistol. In light of the fact that your relatives in Europe are continuing their aggression against Soviet Russia, it has been decreed that you are to be shot. Nicholas came forward. Lord, oh, oh my god, what is this? I can't understand you. Read it again, please. In light of the fact that your relatives in Europe are continuing their aggression against Soviet Russia, it has been decreed that you are to be shot. What? Replied the Tsar, unable to comprehend. This. (laughs) Alexandra and the children watched Nicholas die before the soldiers opened fire on them. Alexandra died, trying to cross herself. Alexei gripped his chair in fear. Unable to get up, the chair toppled over and he crawled to his father and clutched his arm, weeping. Yurovsky shot him in the head. In the smoke and haze, the girls instinctively dropped to the floor, frantically searching for a way out. The soldiers fired at random. When the smoke cleared, Olga and Tatiana were found in a corner, huddled, clinging to one another, crying. They were shot. Anastasia and Maria were found in the other corner, crying for their mother. They were slashed by bayonets. Anna Demidova was the last to die, and the world stopped breathing. The stars shone brightly that night in Russia, and eleven bodies lay buried in Koptiaki Forest, still warm. Not to be seen for sixty-one years. Yes, Nicholas was bad at his job. There is no denying that. He was everything a poor leader is, tyrannical, unprepared, misguided. But he was also a father, husband, and a man. Revolution often has a romantic atmosphere surrounding it, but it always comes with a bloody cost, and we must ask ourselves if we're willing to pay it. If not us, who? But what is the worst that could happen? So we just heard your podcast about the Romanovs. Uh, why did you choose such a topic? Um, growing up in a history buff family, I watched a lot of documentaries as a kid. And one of the most recent ones I watched was about the, uh, the Russian Revolution. And I thought that was super interesting. And the Romanov family, just the complexity and seeing why, you know, you can side with the Russian people during the revolution. You can see their side. You can also see the Romanovs. It's very, it's very human-like. How would you enjoy making the podcast? Uh, I had a lot of fun researching it and writing the scripts. Uh, I was pretty bad at the technical aspects. There were so many things I wanted to do with sound effects, and I just didn't have the knowledge to do it yet, and it, or to make it not sound choppy. So I enjoyed the researching and the script writing. But you did include a lot of sound effects. What other sort of strategies did you use to draw those listeners in? Just tried to catch the attention through the script as best as possible. I tried with the first ticking sound to kind of make people wonder what was going on. Yeah. And any advice for someone who's interested in making podcasts? Uh, Research it very thoroughly and sort of ask yourself questions, what other people would be thinking while listening to your podcast, because then you know you'll try and answer those questions and have a good script don't want to be winging it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. you no